Well, welcome to Keys of the Kingdom. I'm Brother Gregory, and we're going to talk about King, the Kingdom of God. Uh, we've in a series uh, about the mire. You know, the pig returns to his mire and the dog to his vomit. Uh, quote from the Bible. And uh, we're to the point where we're starting to talk about some of the ideas that were expressed by Christ. And we try to look at these from different points of view so that you get a perspective on the mire and how to get out of the mire. Uh, The mire is kind of like quicksand. If you struggle against it, it will pull you in even more. And so, therefore, you have to, uh, you know, so many people, you know, I was on a number of different radio broadcasts recently uh, being interviewed, and people are always asking, how do you get out of the system? And uh, that's what everybody's trying to think about is how to get out of the quagmire, the the mire, the, uh, the, the thing that seems to be sucking them in. And, of course, Christ told us, but he said it in words like, repent, seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And what does that look like? What does that mean? How does that uh, translate or interpolate into action? And uh, he talks about resist not. And uh, so what's he talking about? What is he actually trying to say? And you won't get this in most churches. Most churches are there to comfort you, to make you feel good. To tell you that you're saved, you know, maybe get you to be a little bit better, you know, cut down on some of your immoral activities. But basically, they're comforters. That's what pastors are, is comforters. Well, the Holy Spirit is supposed to be your comforter. And if a pastor becomes your comforter, um, that's that's probably counterproductive. Because you're not going to be listening to the Holy Spirit, you're going to be listening to your pastor. And you can see this with a lot of churches, which are... You know, cultish, where you, you've got to listen to them. You've got to do what they say. And people are always asking me what to do. And I, I don't know what you should do. I'm telling you how the system works. I'm telling you how the system of God works. And you get to choose which one you want to follow. So what does that look like? Well, resist not evil. but uh, And be friends with the unrighteous mammon. These are things that Christ said. And the unrighteous mammon is the system. Uh, Mammon means entrusted wealth. And how was your wealth all entrusted? People, you know, they pay into the system. They pay in and they pay in and they pay in. And they think they have some sort of entitlement coming back. Well, everything they paid in is gone already. Thieves and robbers came in right away and and stole it. The moths ate it up. And it's gone. It's bankrupt. It's operating in the red, not in the black. So there's nothing left of what you paid in. The only way they can provide you with anything is take away from the future of your children, your grandchildren, and your great-grandchildren. And the nature of God is to create man and woman so that they can have children, so that they lay down their life for their children. You get gray hair, you get old by taking care of children and grandchildren. Grandchildren are sometimes a little bit easier because, you know, when they get out of hand, you can send them home. (laughs) Although nowadays, the the number of children being raised by their grandparents because their own children didn't stay married or didn't stay together or what have you and were incompetent in being husband and wife. They didn't even know what being husband and wife was. And one of the major factors contributing to this is things like Social Security and public education. 
Social Security because it takes the elderly out of your home. You don't take care of mom and dad. You know, the government does. And you don't teach and educate your children. The government does. And that it's kind of an insidious way of breaking down the family. Because, you know, it's a burden taking care of some of the elderly in this country, even if they are your parents. The, there was a little video that passed around on Facebook. It's an Italian uh, old man and his son sitting there on a park bench and a sparrow lands. And he says, what's that? And then he says, a sparrow. And then he says again, what's that? And he says, uh, it's a sparrow. You know, S-P-A, you know, it's a sparrow. And finally he blows his top. Why do you keep asking that? And he gets up and he walks away, the old man. He comes back and he hands him a diary. And he says, points to a page to read. Read that out loud, he says, in Italian. And so he reads it. And it's a story of when the boy was three years old and the old man sat on a bench with him. And the boy asked him 21 times, what was that? pointing to a sparrow. And the father answered him 21 times and each time gave him a hug. And of course, the end of the video is that the son feels, who was feeling bad about the fact that he lost his temper with his dad and and he hugged his dad and everything. And, you know, what goes around comes around and that is the nature of God's creation is that he creates husband and wife to have children, to raise these children the children eventually get to a point where they think their parents don't know anything. And then they have to go out and struggle with life. And then they come back and they realize, or they are, the, the old story is that the, the young man is amazed at how much his father had learned between the time he was 16 and 25. <laughs> what it was, is of course, he just began to perceive things from a different point of view. And began to realize that his father wasn't so stupid after all. But the fact is, is it's it's all a mess now, you know, because of public education, as is one of the primary factors. Uh, Social Security, which allows you to do no more art for your parents, you don't have to take them in. They can have their own independence, you know, in their own apartment, and you know, and end up in the convalescent home, and the government will pay it all. There's lessons to be learned in dealing with your elderly. And there's lessons to be learned in educating your children. And unfortunately, you turn your children over to what is mostly liberals, because most public school educational institutions are heavily biased by a liberal. The, certainly the curriculums are we just recently posted on preparing you, uh, you know, several videos that are out there. There's lots of people recognizing this and seeing this, you know, on Common Core. And uh, it, it, it tells you it's destroying the souls and minds of your children. Intelligent educators, professional educators are telling you that it's destroying the mind and souls of your children. And yet, you keep sending your kids to those schools. And and Common Core is, is just, you know, it's just one more step. I mean, you go back to outcome-based education, if any of you are, are familiar with that. 
it was the same kind of thing. It's just that they're, they're always pushing back those bounds. No, you, you need to teach your children at home. You need to gather together with other homeschooling families and work together to teach your children at home. Share information. Share your lessons, the things that you learn. Every kid is a little different. You can't... You, one size doesn't fit all. And you should try different things and pit your opinions against one another to find out what may be the best thing for your children. That's, that takes sacrifice of your time, your energy, sometimes your pride, in order to do that. To listen patiently to other people and their opinion. To try to figure out, what are they seeing something you are not seeing? That's sacrifice. And that's how you get out of the mire. Because that's what Christ came to teach us to do. To sacrifice. Not that your sacrifice earns you salvation. But it draws you near that which will provide you salvation. Now, I, there was an interesting story that I came across. Uh, I think, actually, I think it was last week but uh, or the week before. And uh, uh, it's about a, a, the sister of a girl by the name of Dominique uh, Macanu. I think it's the way, or Maconu, or something. Anyway, it's an Italian name. Oh, actually, it's a Romanian name. Anyway, she, she, at 13, she was winning gold medals at the Olympics for America. She was on the American team. Uh, she didn't know it at the time, but when she was six years old, her parents gave birth to another daughter, her sister. And that sister had a birth defect. And they didn't want to take her home. The father, at least, didn't. And uh, he didn't take her home. And so the, the, the girl of six at that time never knew she had a sister. But she went on and got interested in gymnastics. And her parents were gymnasts. And uh, by the time she was 13, which is like seven years later, she was winning gold medal for the United States in gymnastics. Two years before that, when her sister was five, her sister got interested in gymnastics and began to bounce on a trampoline and wanted to learn to flip. She was just fascinated with that idea. But her sister was now, who had no knowledge of her, who had been adopted by a family out in the middle Midwest, who didn't know anything about her mother or father or, or the fact that she had a sister who was studying to become an Olympic star, she became fascinated with gymnastics and began to learn to flip. And and when she, her sister, began to win this gold medal. She idolized her sister, but she didn't know it was her sister. It was this girl from Romania. She wasn't from Romania. She didn't even know anything about that. And that was her idol, and she wanted to be like her. And she eventually became the state champion in the state where she lived in high school because of gymnastics. 
Now, I said that she had a birth defect. Well, the birth defect, some of you may already know the story, but the birth defect was that she was born without any legs whatsoever. She has no legs. It, I, when I watch her flipping as a, you know this young girl competing in high school, I'm the, I can't figure out how she's even doing it. But there she is, flipping, 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 somersaulting around. She, she's still making her living today in gymnastics, doing shows. Amazing uh, how she ever even learned to do that. Well, somewhere along the line, I think when she was, you know, in her early teens or mid-teens, uh, she asked her adopted mom if she knew anything about her family. And, you know, before. And all she knew was the name, the last name. And it happened to be the last name of the girl that this young girl without legs, competing in gymnastics, winning state tournaments uh, with what should be considered a handicap, but she didn't consider it necessarily a handicap. And uh, she found out that her last name was the same name as this Dominique. And she pursued it and eventually got a hold of her and, and got to know her. Now, why in the world... Was she obsessed so much, even without legs, that she became a champion gymnast? And her sister was becoming a gold medal winner with no contact whatsoever. Didn't know, even, neither one of them knew of each other's existence. She's genetically a gymnast? <laughs> genetically has that kind of drive? Well, you could say that, but the reality is there's a connection. There's a spiritual quantum connection between uh, Dominique and Jen Bricker, which was the name of the girl without legs. And we see the same thing, and I've told other stories on the air about the fact that, uh, uh, you know, like a, a, a young teenager gets pregnant in high school and has to give up a child for adoption. She eventually, after she leaves high school, marries the boy who was the father they were brokenhearted that they did not, weren't not able to keep the daughter. They got married. They tried to have children. They never had children. They both got into business in New York and New York City. And then later on, when the the lady was thinking about retiring from her business, starting to cut back and turning her business over to one of her employees, began to reexamine their their uh, resumes. And the one she wanted to give it over to, she was looking at the resume and realized that she was born on the same day as her daughter back at when she was in high school. And it was her daughter. New York City, whole New York City, her daughter ends up going to work for her. She didn't know it was her mother. She didn't know it was her daughter. They had no idea whatsoever. They ended up working together, becoming bosom friends and it's her actual daughter and her husband's daughter you can't make this stuff up if you wrote that as fiction nobody would believe it but there it is in real life it happens 
and you don't believe that there's a spiritual reality, a spiritual realm, a quantum realm in which we are connected beyond the physical email (laughs) and letters we write back and forth and the words we say to each other in our ears, then in a city of millions and millions of people, she ends up working for her mother? That doesn't just happen. The study of twins, the study of families separating, finding one another. Unbelievable. But yet, they have to be believable because they actually happen. Because there's a connection. So now, what is this all about? Why are we taking this strange tour in uh, metaphysical wonders of the universe? Is <laughs> because you want... Out of the system, you have to get into the system of Christ. You have to get into the thinking of Christ. You have to get into the way of Christ. Because you become connected. Even though you're a sinner, like Jen Bricker was, even though she had no legs, she became a gymnatic, a gymnast, a star gymnast, an award winning gymnast. How did that happen? She was connected to her sister, spiritually, in the quantum of the universe. You need to be connected to Christ. And you're not. You don't need to be connected to your pastor. You need to be connected to Christ. And then all other connections that you have, family, friends, neighbors, government, are filtered through that connection with Christ. You do not want other people to sacrifice for you. You want to sacrifice for other people. You get to choose which ones. Hopefully you choose wisely and according to the Holy Spirit. But you get to choose. This draws you towards the system of God and away from the systems of the world. You have to sacrifice your life How much? That's up to you. How often? With whom? In what way? It's up to you. You and the Holy Spirit. I can't tell you how to do that. No pastor can tell you how to do that. I can tell you, you know, give you hints. You know, know, help people. Strengthen people. You know, here's, here's a way. Rebuke people, even though they may hate you. Tell them the truth. I told somebody the truth. They just took off like a flash. (laughs) They didn't want to hear the truth. Something in them did not want to hear the truth. Don't try to get out of the system. Try to get into the system of Christ. This is how you get out of the mire. Because you can't pull yourself up out of quicksand. He can pull you out. He can arrange things you cannot imagine. But you have to lay down your life for your fellow man in love. Not in fear of not being saved. Not in fear of what's coming in the future. But out of love for others. That ain't easy. Because you're not a very loving person. That's how you got to where you are today. But you can be changed. That muck and mire can be washed away. If you repent and start... You know, a lot of you are thinking... Right now, I can tell. I can hear you thinking. (laughs) 
I'm a pretty nice guy. I do a lot of things for other people. It isn't what you do for other people. It's what you don't do. And there are lots you don't do. But it's also listening to the Holy Spirit. I mean, people do things for other people because they want they want praise. Praise of, by themselves, even. They, they will praise themselves. I do things for other people. I'm nice. I sacrifice. I take care of my family. I take care of my... Maybe you have somebody who's disabled in your family. Matter of fact, you do. We're all disabled. We're all missing something. And maybe you take care of them and you sacrifice. And that's good. But it's not enough. you got to put on the full armor of God. Anywhere where you do not put on that armor of God is a chink in your armor. It makes you unsafe. It will make you blind. And they will have access to you. And you will suffer for it. God may still be there for you. But He will not even strive with you forever. So anyway... That's that's why I want you to see that there. this is not a matter of follow the yellow brick road or just follow these steps. The yellow brick road forks all over the place. And those forks can take you down paths that you may not want to go. You know, I, I remember in 1 Timothy 3.1 it says, This is the true saying. If a man desire the office of bishop, he desires a good work. Now, what what office of bishop? And what do they mean, bishop? And which is actually the word for overseer. And since, of course, we know Christ said you could not exercise authority one over the other, he's not an overseer of people. He's not bossing people around. He's not directing people here and there. He's not telling people what to do. But he's the overseer of those things we call offerings. And he is the overseer of deacons. What are deacons? Now that's that's something I was uh, going to share with a lot of you, and have. I mean, I actually have a web page up that talks about it. And I actually uh, added to that web page a little bit the other day uh, because I came across some more information concerning deacons. I mean, this whole word deacon. Which is often translated servant uh, in the Bible. Uh, and, you know, it, on our page at Preparing You, you know, we talk about it. And I quote uh, Deacon Gooley, who had an, an opinion based on uh, a letter to uh, Tralian by uh, Ignatius of Antioch. And maybe we'll go into that a little bit, but we want to know what individually we can do to get out of the mire. And this is why Christ appointed His church to facilitate that, not to bring you out. You must, you can only be brought out by Christ, by the Holy Spirit. But how does that look in the real world in real time? And that's what we'll talk about when we come back.
welcome back to Keys of the Kingdom. Uh, in getting out of the mire, getting out of this system, one must be in a system of another kind. A system that provides for liberty. And how does that system work? It only works when it's filled with people who care about your liberty as much as they care about their own. It does not work in any other system or any other community or any other society. If the people in your society, and you can be in a society within a society, which is what Christianity was. Christianity was an alternative society existing in the world. But what made it separate was it was not of the world. In other words, it didn't seek the benefits of the world. And on a radio broadcast that was just on recently, I was mentioning this, and, and there was an objection to the fact because, uh, th- I mean, they they didn't really say exactly why, but I could sense that they were probably on some sort of disability check themselves. And uh, they were thinking, well, now we paid in, so we have a right to that. Well, I'm I'm not saying you cannot take your Social Security and go, you have to go out and starve to death in the street. I'm saying repent, turn around. Realize that that Social Security, that welfare, the food stamps, all those systems that are created are made to weaken you, to make turn you into merchandise, to curse your children with the debt that they're creating. And other things, they, they weaken your children as well. And... What I'm saying is that to turn around and seek another way, which is the way of Christ, which has a system of social security in it too, but it's based on faith, hope, and charity, not force, not compelled compliance. Well, that's going to take a little bit more work because you you have to be responsible for who you give your funds to. And you have to create a loyalty in people by doing it in a just way. So that their sons and daughters will care about you as much as you care about yourself. And you care about them as much. See, if you want to take from the system, you don't care about your neighbor's children or grandchildren because they're going to have to pay the debt. You are perfectly content in forcing that burden upon them. Because there is no money. It has. It only comes from borrowing money. Yeah, they they have a certain amount coming in, but the, there's no division of funds. So therefore, if your country is operating in the red, and I don't know any country that is not, except maybe the Vatican, <laughs> and they have a different debt <laughs> that they owe. <laughs> uh, and I wouldn't even be sure about them. I, I don't know. But uh, you, you can look it up. All the other countries. I could go look it up. All the countries. They, they tell you. Probably Wikipedia. I'll tell you. They're operating in debt. Because the debt is bondage. And that's, that's how they enslave you. The greatest destroyers of freedom are the givers of gifts, gifts, gratuities, and benefits. That's how they get you in the mire. It's a mire of debt. You're a surety for that debt. And your children are surety for that debt because you wanted free education and free health care and free all this stuff. I mean, it goes it goes much further and that's why we wrote the book Covenants of the Gods. You can read that and that's how you got into the mire. We're talking now about how to get out. 
Well, you have to put on that character of Christ, which is the character of God, which God gives you the ability to be fruitful and multiply, have children, and children require that you sacrifice yourself for them. That's family. But kingdom is a lot of families coming together. Because the kingdom of God is from generation to generation. Your generation to the next generation. Your brother's generation to his next generation. And his your distant cousin's generation to his next generation. And we're all related in mankind. So it's all these generations following the ways of God, the character of God, from generation to generation. That's the kingdom of God. The kingdom of the world is where some man becomes your father, not your father in heaven. And his successor becomes your new father, like a new pharaoh, like a new president, like a new whatever. And you look to them to be your comforter, to be your security, to be your savior. And while you're looking to them, you cannot be looking to God. So what I'm saying is that if you're depending upon these systems to sustain you, know this, those systems will fail. Jesus says, be friends with the unrighteous mammon so that when it fails, he didn't say if it fails, he says when it fails, you will be suitable for more righteous habitation. The last thing we want to do is attract a bunch of tax protesters who refuse to pay their taxes. They took the benefits. They went to public school. They, you know, they don't take care of their parents. They, their parents are taken care of by a social security check, but they won't pay into the system. Don't they realize that when they pay into the system, they're counterbalancing their own parents' paycheck, uh, you know, check from social security? They're not being fruitful. Yeah, I know that they say, oh, like, like the beast is going to starve to death. Don't feed the beast. That, that's, a, that's a rationalization cop-out so that you don't have to do what you need to do. If you want to come out of the system, you're not going to just pay 14% or 20% or 30%. You have to give all that's what the apostles had to do. They had to give up all. You want to be one of my disciples? One of my student ministers? You have to give up all. This is a huge commitment to be a minister of Christ. People say, oh, well, that sounds Catholic. and that sounds... It's what Jesus said. Come on. Pay attention. If you want to be one of my disciples, you have to give up all your property. And give it over to others. I'm trying to give it over to other ministers. But I can't find a lot of ministers who will make the commitment to to strive daily to become the servants of Christ's Corbin. Of course, it's hard to find elders. You know, elders are heads of families. Who will make the commitment to Christ, not to me, to Christ, to come together in his name to sacrifice for one another. Not just those they love, not just their family. You have to love your family, obviously. Christ has a number of quotes in there that says, you got to set your family aside because they're, 
You have to love others. You have to cast your bread upon the waters. You can't just love those who love you. I mean, we have hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people in the email network. If they were contributing just one or two percent, we could help build every year. We could expand the number of retreat centers across the country that could help the poor today and help them tomorrow. We need to get in the habit of helping others so that we will be suitable for more righteous habitations. And cheating on your taxes is not giving me evidence that you are uh, someone who is willing to sacrifice. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's. But seek the kingdom of God and His righteousness. Seek this alternative system that operates by faith, hope, and charity on an intimate level. I'm not saying send your money to the Pope. I'm saying get together in local congregations and give funds there. And turn those funds into charitable projects to help not only the people in your congregation, but your neighbors, both near and far. How you do that, how you divide that up, that will be between you and the Holy Spirit. In the same way that that, I mean, the two sisters who didn't even know each other existed, both becoming gymnastic stars. One, one with, you know, coaching and help and aid and, and, uh, the other one. It's interesting. The one who became the gold medal winner at 13. Eventually, by the time she was 17, she had to get a court order to keep her father away from her. Because he was ruining her life. He's since died, but, and they have a relationship with the mother now. And the girls know each other. The other girl, her parents were just there for her. They weren't driving her to become a, gymnatic, a g- gymnast. But she wanted to do it. She wanted to learn to tumble. And so they evidently got her a trampoline when she was five. And went out there and she was flipping on the trampoline. But they were moving out of love. The other one was moving out of ambition. They both became stars and they both paid prices for it. But they made their own choices. And now the two of them, they have have things, you know, they, they make, complement each other. They really, over the years, they need to cultivate those relationships because they are, they are bound together spiritually. Physically. Now, take that to you in Christ. How are you bound with Christ? Do you want... Christ came to serve. Do you want to come together to serve? Or you just want to get out of the system? Do you want to come and set others free? Or do you want to just be free yourself? What is your priority? Because Christ's priority was to set you free. So you don't gather together because you're gathering together with saints. Christ didn't come and gather with saints. He gathered with sinners. 
and called them to sainthood. As many as he loved, he also rebuked. You see the pattern. This is how you, this is how you do it. You have to gather together and lay down your lives daily. Sacrifice for one another. Not just for your family and those that love you, but for those who don't love you. If one of your children hates you, do you stop loving them? If one of your children fights against what you believe in, rebels against what you believe in, do you stop loving that child? You don't have that option as a parent. You don't have that option in the kingdom of God at all. This is what Christ was teaching you. And a lot of a lot of churches and preachers talk about that. Forgive, turn the other cheek, love one another. And that's good. But what is your heart being pulled to the pastor or is your heart being pulled to Christ? You have to sacrifice for one another. There is no other way. You have to forgive one another. If you are in a congregation of saints, who is there to forgive? They're all saints. Bless God. Thank God for the sinners He sends you. They have not walked the walk that you have. They did not have the opportunities you had. Maybe they had more. I don't know. But if there are demons that come into your congregation, you do not get rid of them by judgment. You get rid of them by righteousness, by love, by the light of Christ glowing in you. Because they hate the light. That's how you get rid of them. But you don't try to get rid of them. You try to put the light on the lampstand. And the cockroaches will flee. They flee the light. This is how it works. And back when I was talking about deacons, you know, the, there was a thing called disemviri in, uh, in uh, Rome, which was, uh, it was kind of a commission of ten men. Disemviri. There's several ways to pronounce this because there's a Greek and there's classical pronunciation, but decem viri, ten men. There's also a thing called diakonatos, and it's D-I-A-C-O-N-A-T-U-S, which is the office of deacon, which is D-E-A-C-O-N. But the office of deacon is D-I-A-C-O-N. This is the way Latin works. For a thousand years before Augustus Caesar, the idea of tens, hundreds, and thousands had been around, even for more than a thousand years. So he had a thing called de caprotus in the Latin. D-E-C-A-P. Which means the ten chief men. Why ten chief men? What were they chief of? Ten men. But they didn't exercise authority. They weren't kings over these men. But they were in this network system. Decem primusis. Uh, which was uh, sometimes called a president. Or uh, the head of ten 
de Curie. De Curie has to do with 10 also. So this is a 10 of 10. Even the word dean that we have today, you know, like the dean of discipline or the dean of your school, it comes from that Latin decanus, which is the head of 10, founded upon uh, this same word decim, which is, it can be spelled a number of different ways depending on how it's used in a sentence. This is what a deacon was. He was the servant of ten. But he also was a servant of the ministers that he picked, the overseer that he picked. Because a portion of what he received would go to him, but a portion would also go out. And then occasionally he didn't have enough, and so he would go to the overseer, and the overseer would share what he was receiving from others with him. And this is the way the network, it's like a human body. When you're digesting food, a lot more blood goes to the stomach and the intestines and moves that digestion. When you're breathing heavy, more blood goes into the lungs and picks up more oxygen and releases more carbon dioxide. But when you're resting, it goes somewhere else. When you're swimming, it goes to the muscles. When you're running, it goes to the muscles. It the body divides the resources of the body according to the needs of the body. But the overseer is not ruling over the people. He's ruling over the stuff the people have let go of. The sacrifice. This is, this is the way the body of Christ operates. You get to choose who your minister will be. And he gets to choose who his minister will be. And that will be his overseer. Because his minister will be the minister of ten men. We use words like bishop, which is what they, and sometimes it's translated overseer. But it comes from words like episcopo. In the Greek. So, people wanted to know, and this is one of the things that we're going to go into, is, uh, you know, this the... These words like deacon means this leadership of the church, but it's only the leaders. You know, in the in the Greek, it's uh, well, I won't do the Greek alphabet, but it's D I A K O N O S, D I A, not D E A. Well, in the the Latin, if you go D I C instead of K. <laughs> Now you're getting into these other words that has to do with this office of deacon. So these are all blended together and the people back then are very familiar with the tens, the tens, hundreds, and thousands. And the elders were simply the heads of family. But one of those elders might be chosen to be appointed to be a deacon. And then he would choose his minister, which we would call an episcopal or overseer. And this is the way they worked. And so somebody was writing me and asking, do you have more proof of this? They needed more proof. And I think they need more proof because they want to prove it to somebody else. But can you tell me another way in which the kingdom of God could operate? Do you see anywhere where the kingdom of God is operating in any other way? Well, of course, spiritually, we have this mystical thing where people are connected and where all of a sudden... 
Somebody will come from another town and said, I was led to come here by the Spirit. They didn't get a message from their deacon or from their bishop to come. They came because the Holy Spirit guided them. But on a day-to-day basis, the tens, hundreds, and thousands was the way in which the church operated. And we see this cropping up here and there. It was just so common that they didn't even have to spell it out. There were 12 apostles and 120 names in the upper room. That's 10 for every apostle. And then on Pentecost, they come out and they baptize all these people. They're all going to be cast out of the social welfare system operated through the temple and the synagogues because that's what it says in the Bible. Anybody who got that baptism is cast out of that system. They're out of the system. What's going to replace that? Some of these people need help. The tens, hundreds, and thousands. And why did this happen at Pentecost? Because Pentecost and the Feast of Tabernacles was a time in which the nation sent... Everybody in the nation didn't go to Pentecost. Everybody in the nation didn't go to uh, Feast of Tabernacles. They couldn't. I mean, the whole country would be empty everywhere else. Every home would be empty. Anybody could come in and rob them. Nobody's feeding. You're bringing all the animals. I mean, it's just they didn't all come. But they all sent a representative. And we have spring gatherings. We have fall gatherings. And we don't have exact dates. I'm letting that organically figure itself out. And the more you gather, the more the Holy Spirit will help you figure that out. When to gather, where to gather. But the idea is to pick your minister and make sure your minister gets to these because he's going to pick his overseer and then etc., etc., etc. It's a structure that is grassroots by its nature because we can't exercise authority over you. You must organize yourselves. You must come together, not forsake the gathering together yourselves. But it's the sacrifice that it takes to do that that opens the door, which is Christ, to you. The word sacrifice, Corbin, comes from a word that means to draw near. This is how you draw near to the ways of Christ. The closer you get, the more you can hear what he has for you to do. They tell us that this office of bishop, this is in the structure of the kingdom which is the only institution that God created other than holy matrimony. The, the union of man and woman. That was an institution of God. It's, it's built into creation. But the kingdom of God appointed by God to the order of Melchizedek, which we could explain in another place and probably already have, that is this voluntary network of men who give. I mean, even even Abraham tithed to who? Well, in a way, to Melchizedek, the righteous king, the king that operated by faith, hope, and charity, the righteous king of peace, Salem. That's what it means. He, he gave to him a portion of, and it did, it may come back to him, it may not, but it came back with wine and food and bread when he needed it, when his army was fighting this invader, which that army arose up out of a voluntary militia 
that came overnight to help Abraham. Why? Because they trained together all the time. Because they were taxing one another and built up this big army and military industrial complex. No. Because they had built a system of altars which was a system of charity. That provided social parachute for society. Locally, it helped out the people that were there so that they had bonds between them. But nationally or or across a broad area, it created a union that was spiritual, but became physical when necessary. And this is why Rome feared Christians. But anyway, we'll talk more about this next on Keys to the Kingdom. Be there. You have been listening to The Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. For more information on the educational ministry provided by His Holy Church and Brother Gregory, including services, counseling, lectures, books, and other audio materials, please write to His Church at Summer Lake, Box 10, Summer Lake, Oregon, 97640. You can also find us on the web at www.hisholychurch.net. Back to Keys of the Kingdom. Um, we're going to start some questions here that came to me about the, the book, Thy Kingdom Comes, which you can get free online. Uh, you can order it from us too, but uh, it's available up there at hisholychurch.org. And um, they quoted from an ep, uh, a little ep, excerpt from the uh, text, and it says, The Levites had replaced the firstborn of the nation. You can find quotes in the Bible talks about the Levites being the firstborn of a nation. And what they had done is they replaced the firstborn of the nation as a sort of public servant to keep the people from the sin of the golden calf and the common purse of national banking. Now, 
Uh, I'll read the whole thing and then we'll come back to that. They were uh, to serve the tents of the congregation. You'll find that the tabernacle of the congregation repeated over and over again in the Old Testament. The tabernacle of the congregation, we have a tendency to think, is that one big tent. But considering the number of Levites, they were all, weren't all hanging around in that big tent all the time. So this phrase, the tabernacle of the congregation, meant the tents of the congregation, because the word tabernacle just means tents. Either big tent or a bunch of little tents. And they talk about, you know, how the tents of the the people were to be all around the tabernacle and all this kind of stuff, and they give you numerical patterns and all this kind of stuff. Well, geographically, when they all camp together, well, that may have applied, but the fact is that it doesn't all always apply to setting up a bunch of tents because they became a whole nation spread out over many, many miles. But they were still serving the tents of the congregation. They were still gathering in that numerical pattern. But it was a numerical pattern of their organization rather than exactly where to set up your tent. So these Levites were to serve the tents of the congregation, strengthening them as individuals while unifying them as one nation. So this is a two, two phases to their role. They weren't all sitting there at this giant tent killing sheep all day. You know, they, they had a purpose. They had land near every town. They had uh, 48 different uh, cities, they called them. They're actually structures. They're not actually physical locations, although they may have uh, been interpolated eventually into physical locations uh, by fulfilling their role. But they had lands in common that belonged to the Levites. Yet the Levites had no inheritance in the land. Well, how can they have land and not have inheritance in the land? Because inheritance in the land of Israel was from generation to generation, from family to family. But the inheritance of the Levite was from this corporate office created by Moses. The Levites belonged to God. They didn't belong to themselves. They had no personal estate. If they sold you land, any Levite could come and buy it back. And you didn't have a choice in the matter. Why? Because they didn't own the land to even sell it. They, and, and, I mean, I've, I've had this discussion with other people. That they said, well, I don't know anything about Levites owned all kinds of land. But if they owned it, then why couldn't they sell it and it be remain sold? When... Any other Levite could come and force you to sell it back to a Levite. Then there's something wrong with the title that the Levite held in the land. The reality was the Levite only held a legal title to the land. And God actually owned the land because God actually owned the Levite. And they held all things in common. So any Levite could redeem any land any time. You're seeing a, a legal pattern created here. The Levites were a body. They were the church in the wilderness. But anyway, I'm saying all this so that when we get to the question, you'll have a little bit 
of a basis to figure out what we're talking about. And I'll tell you why some people have a difficulty in figuring this out. And you may be one of those people, so you stay tuned. So anyway, it says uh, they were servants of this, the tents of the congregation, strengthening them as individuals while unifying them as one nation. In this process, they were required as an alternative to Babylon, Egypt, and eventually Roman-type systems to help them be fruitful and prosperous. You know, like John says, uh, above all else, I want you to be you know, healthy and prosper. Goes on to say, keeping each family strong and prosperous was the practical duty of the minister of the people. Now, they were gathered in these groups of ten. We see Moses setting up these groups of ten families. And then those families would gather in, you know, at least five Families would gather and make fifties and then eventually hundreds and then thousands. And now how, how were they doing that? Well, the, the ten families would pick a minister and that minister would get together with other ministers like himself and they would form a group. And then they would pick a minister and that minister would unite thousands of people. And that minister was eventually in the Greek called an overseer which is literally translated overseer, and sometimes we translate it bishop. But overseer of what? Overseer of the tens, hundreds, and thousands. Overseeing what? To rule them? No, because they didn't have a king yet. They didn't have somebody who could rule over them. To rule over that which they let go and made offerings to... See, if you if you think Abraham was... You know, killing sheep and setting them on fire all the time. And that because he got all kinds of other people to kill sheep and set them on fire, that when they were invaded, all these guys rushed to the aid of Abraham. Something's superstitiously wrong in your brain. And I understand that this is what they're taught you, but who taught you that? It's the Pharisees that they went to to say, tell us what the... Bible means. Translate the Bible. Give us the Old Testament. Tell us what that was about. Because like I said, the Essenes at the time, which is a general term, they didn't call themselves Essenes, but there was a whole group of people that were considered the most philanthropic group and society within Judea and spread all over the Roman Empire. They were the most charitable group of people. They believed reading the same Torah that the animal sacrifice we see the Pharisees doing at the temple was a fiction and a fraud. And they wouldn't have anything to do with it. Yet they believed in the Torah. They had a completely different interpretation. And like I said before, they also had some other strange ideas, like stop the taking of oaths. What a strange idea that was. Don't suppress and oppress Women, don't be a chauvinist. That a woman can carry the Holy Spirit the same as a man. A woman shouldn't be exercising authority over men, but men shouldn't be exercising authority over men either. 
And that always that always astounds me. People say, oh, they they don't even allow women to exercise authority in the church. Well, Jesus said you are not to exercise authority one over the other. So, yeah, women aren't. Men aren't. <laughs> You're not supposed to be telling people what to do and making them do it and forcing them to contribute like all the Christian churches do. Oh, they don't force you in the church. They have... They elect governments to force you to contribute because the church doesn't even serve the tents of the congregation. The benefactors who exercise authority serves the tents of your congregation. You just go to church so that you can feel good about the fact that you live a covetous lifestyle as social Democrats. Forcing your neighbors. You know, you might be social Republicans, but that doesn't really matter. Democrat, Republican, that doesn't mean anything. You're all socialists. You all use public school. You all use these health cares. And, I mean, even the police department is a socialist police department because you're taxed to provide their salary. That's socialism. Now, am I saying to get rid of all that? No, I'm saying start going the other way. Start backing each other up. Start community watch, start taking care of your elderly yourself, start funding ministers to come in and help you take care of the elderly yourselves. Because it's kind of overwhelming at times. Start working together as congregations so that your minister doesn't have to devote 24-7 to take care of the elderly that you should be taking care of but don't have time to because you have to work 24-7 yourself in order to make a living. You've got everything backwards. You should be seeking the kingdom of God and His righteousness. Now, I understand that it takes a little bit of time to turn around your thinking. But your ministers can help you do that. Help bring in... uh, You don't have any teenagers in your house yet. But we can find you a young 18-year-old, 19-year-old who may come in and relieve the minister and help take care of the elderly. While, you know, because a lot of times you can do that and still study and learn things, etc., etc., and they could be overseen by the minister as they learn to minister to the elderly or to the sick or to the infirm. And you could take turns and do this. This is visiting the poor. Unspotted by the world means not taking their check. Recently, I, I, I shared with the minister's group. Uh, I can't even remember how they put it. Uh, I think it's J, JPUSA, uh, Jesus People USA. <laughs> and they have some deal in Chicago. And they help the poor. And I'm not sure exactly how they work. Uh, so I can't say for sure, but I, I suspect from what I've been told by others that they're all for getting food stamps and welfare and all these kinds of benefits and they're advocates for the poor. In other words, they go and they try to get the poor on as many government benefits as possible and they think they're doing the work of Jesus. The work of Jesus was getting people off of the dependency upon the benefactors who exercise authority one over the other. That took a lot of work. There's a lot of people at the Jesus people thing that don't really do a lot of work. There's a lot of playing around and fooling around and idle time. 
and a lot of money that is gathered up to have nice accommodations for them, but then they have all these accommodations for the poor, which are not necessarily not nice, although I hear stories about, you know, mice and rats and stuff like that. But the point is, is that who's actually paying for their stay there? They get them on government benefits and then they have money to pay them. And they think that's strengthening the poor. Let's go on with the quote here. You know, we're talking about a substitute system for the systems of the world, which we call Babylon, Egypt, Rome. The, you know, my kingdom's not of that world. And so, therefore, when he says pure religion is to take care of the needy of your society, visit the poor and the widows and the orphans of your society, take care of their needs, unspotted by the world, the word world there is constitutional order and system of men, which is those benefactors who exercise authority. If you're not running a charitable institution that's not dependent upon them, you're not really following Christ. You're not practicing pure religion. Goes on to say, keeping each family strong and prosperous was the practical duty of the ministers of the people who would share in their prosperity. In other words, it was the job of the minister to make sure that each family stayed together and prospered, grew with health and and uh, dignity and honor, because the more they had, the more they would have to share with the minister, and then he had a certain social security in improving their state. But Moses set it up so that the Levites were not simply mendicant ministers impoverished. They had lands they had livestock. They had orchards. But they couldn't inherit them. If they wanted their nation to be successful, they had to serve the tents of the, uh, the, the congregations. Now, Israel passed this on with their treatment of the foreigners around about them. So much so that the foreigners round about them wanted Israel as their neighbor. Because they knew that they didn't have to worry about the Israel attacking them because Israel was this charitable people. As long as they were fair with Israel, Israel would never attack them. They had no king that would want to rise up and invade and improve his army. Once they got a king, then they started doing that. But before that, that, that wasn't a concern. But they wanted them there because they knew no other army was going to get through Israel to attack them from that side. So they were safe from that side. And that if if an army came about like it did in the days of Sodom and Gomorrah, that the Israelites would rise up and protect their neighbors. Because they had to care about their neighbors, even the foreigners in their midst, as much as they cared about themselves. Israel today doesn't always do that. It may be a little bit nobler than some of them around about them. Uh, but uh, their government is not always as just as it ought to be. It certainly isn't following Moses. And we can go through that in another time. If you have questions about that, join the network and ask him, and we'll explain it to you. <laughs> but uh, taking care of the poor was a major portion of uh, the Levitical responsibility. And we see that in Leviticus 25.35. 
where it says, And if thy brother be waxen poor, fallen in decay with thee, you know, some sort of deformity, disability or something has come to him, then thou shalt relieve him, it says. And that word relieve is is uh, actually uh, translated strong about 18 times. Repair, no, about 48 times. Uh, repair about 47 times. And uh, hold, strengthen, strengthen, harden, uh, prevail, encourage, take, courage. Um, a number of different ways. But it had to do with this to strengthen that individual. If he has difficulty, you don't want to weaken him with your charity. You want to strengthen him with your charity. But now, that was for the brother who waxed poor. But then it goes on to say, Yea, though he be a stranger or a sojourner. I mean, that's like a foreigner. That he may live with thee. So you had to do this with not only the neighbors to your country, but if they were in your country, you had to care about them and help them if they were poor. So your congregations cannot think of just helping those inside the congregation if they get poor or have difficulty. They should weekly be building a fund to help people round about them that are not in their congregation and certainly other congregations throughout the network. So some funds should always be going in that direction to help others in other parts of the network. You can't just love those who love you. There's no grace in that. That's what the Bible says. You have to love those who may not even love you. Foreigners and strangers. Deuteronomy 15.11 It says, The poor shall never cease out of the land. What did Jesus say? The poor you will have with you always. Therefore, I command you, it says in Deuteronomy, command thee, saying, Thou shalt open thine hand wide unto thy brother, to thy poor, to thy needy, in thy land. That's in your face. Love the ones in front of you. So these are instructions given to all of Israel and specifically in Leviticus. That this is what they're supposed to be doing. Strengthening the poor. So, you know, that that's pretty obvious. And, and that was in the footnote in the book. Yet, I get a question. How does the scripture referenced above indicate that it was the responsibility of the Levites to use the tithes and offerings entrusted to them to take care of the poor? For one thing, tithes is, we always think of this 10%, that goes to the Levite. That's, that's his, 10%. But the reality was there were several tithes. You could be, tithe was 10% because it was one-tenth from each member of the congregation. They were free will offerings. So, obviously, when they say one-tenth, it's not a compulsory one-tenth of whatever you've earned. You could give more, you could give less. I mean, obviously, the uh, the widow's might was more than 10%. It was everything she had. So... You know, what What are they trying to tell you? They're just simply, compared to all other governments of the world, they were saying, operate by charity. If you already got ten families gathered together to form a congregation, and each family is going to give a share, then it's going to be called a tithe, because it's from the ten. 
And to be equally fair, that everybody should give somewhat the same percentage every time they give. But that's up to you. Because it's a free will offering. That's what they keep saying over and over again. If it's not, you're not going to develop those spiritual bonds that connect you with another. You know, the passion of the girl who became the gymnast was not just a passion for gymnastics. That's her passion for her sister was translated. Her passion for that family that abandoned her. She sensed that abandonment way back then when she was born. She called out for that. And that connected her to her sister and her sister's uh, love for gymnastics. Because even though her father was pushing her, she did have a love for gymnastics. She was good at it. She could not have excelled without that love of that. But what she missed more than anything was the love of her father. She didn't feel like she, her father really loved her. Her father did, probably didn't know how. This is father probably didn't love him. But the fact is these two sisters loved each other even though they never saw each other. They were, they were spiritually bound together. That's what's going to make your congregation. That invisible bonds. Because we serve an invisible God. Who connects to us in an invisible realm. It's not a physical realm. It's a spiritual realm. Quantum realm that connects us. Everybody wants to get the emotional connection. Play the music. Dance around the, you know, whatever. To get this emotional charge. And I'm not against that. But if you depend upon that to create the bonds of your congregation... It will weaken you in the real ways of the Spirit. And I know some of you are starting to catch on to this. I know you've listened over and over. <laughs> I can hear you catching on to it. But you can't grasp this intellectually. The only way, this has to be uh, ingrained in your heart and in your mind. Not just in your mind. In your heart and your mind. By the Holy Spirit itself, in order to let that Holy Spirit in, you must forgive and give. You must come together for the purposes of forgiving and giving. I mean, it's really easy to forgive people that you never, ever have to see again. <laughs> you, don't, you don't want to look at them. You don't want to talk to them. You want to avoid them. You're not really forgiving them. Oh, I forgive you. I just don't ever want to be near you or talk to you or communicate with you again. You're fooling yourselves. You're not really forgiving. When you really forgive people, you can walk into a room of people who just pounded nails in your heart and you can say, oh, I forgive them. They didn't know what they were doing. You don't have any animosity towards them. The sight of them does not cause you pain. You've forgiven them. You're freed from their sin. They may not be freed from it. But you're free from it. Their presence is not going to undo you. You can walk into the room with them and there's no problem to you. So anyway, uh, it it goes at the end of every seven years in, in this uh, one quote, uh, 
and shall make a release. And this is the manner of your release. Now, people try to turn this into a mindless ritual. And this is what they do with everything from the Sabbath to uh, the Eucharist. You know, you, you get this little wafer of bread and you put it on your tongue and then that's the body you've received, the body of Christ. When the bread of Christ was actually, you know, like the loaves and fishes. I mean, it actually fed people, filled up their bellies. That's the Eucharist of Christ. Thanksgiving. Thankful for the opportunity of giving. Not crumbs, but an actual loaf of bread to the people who are hungry. That's the Eucharist of Christ. It isn't a magical wafer that you, you, you change into the body and blood of Christ. You need to be the body and blood of Christ. And you do that by taking bread out of your pocket and putting it to someone else in a way that strengthens them. Not makes them more dependent upon you, but less. Not more dependent upon the benefactors who exercise authority to live in your your uh, uh, low-income housing that you built there in Chicago that is now being paid for by governments who exercise authority, tax other people and hand out welfare and food stamps, and then you collect that money from them while you give them a little 14 by... 10 foot room apartment and then you say well we're helping the poor when you're you're actually making everybody a surety for debt by praying to benefactors who exercise authority to give you the money so that you can look like you're charitable referring to the you know I, I'm, I don't want to pick on the Jesus people but and I haven't really looked at their their books, but I bet you anything if we looked at their books, that's what we would find. Is that they're actually much of their charitable works. And I'm not saying there isn't some sincere people there, but they're not putting on the full armor of God. They're still praying to those benefactors who exercise authority. And Jesus said it wasn't to be that way with us. So you're not really Jesus' people if you're dependent upon those benefactors who exercise authority to do your charitable work. You're kidding yourselves. Let's get on, get with the real Jesus, people. <laughs> okay. <laughs> we'll be right back. Okay, I'm going to try to reveal to you a little secret. Everybody, uh, everybody, you know, we got money versus mammon, and we've talked about things like the Federal Reserve and how the creation of legal tender has made it so that nobody owns their land, and then because of debt, nobody owns themselves, and because of benefits, nobody owns their children. And you're all back into the bondage of Egypt and back in Babylon again. And it's Babylon the Great because everywhere you go in every country, they're all linked together with these systems of social welfare that depend upon benefactors who exercise authority one over the other. All of which Christ said not to do. And it's you, you've got, you know, Catholic Germany and, and uh, Protestant nations all over the country and all over the world. 
who all depend upon these benefactors who exercise authority. All participate in these covetous practices that make them merchandise and curse their children. I mean, it's pervasive. I don't know where you could go where you don't run into a socialist state. Uh, there's some that might be a little bit less worse than others, but uh, there's no there's no place to hide anymore. There's no place to there's no uh, frontier to escape to, and it's everywhere. It's totally pervasive the whole world, and there are more people living on the planet now than probably have ever lived on the planet in the history of the world, and uh, and we're going most of us are going the wrong way. So we're, this is what repenting and seeking the kingdom of God is to seek a way in which to take care of one another without forcing the contributions of your neighbor, without coveting your neighbor's goods, but to do it through faith, hope, and charity. And it takes a certain kind of person willing to do that. And you can't make yourself that person. You have to be made that person. And you're made that person when you seek the ways of Jesus, the Christ, and the anointing of Christ in you which means you gather together for the purposes of sacrificing yourself for the benefit of others. Not necessarily give them what they want, but give them what they need. That will strengthen them. So anyway, Deuteronomy 15, way back then, it's the same message. It talks, and this is the manner of your release, because you're supposed to release every seven years. Every creditor that lendeth ought unto his neighbor, shall release it. Forgive the debt. He shall not exact it of his neighbor or of his brother because it is called the Lord's release. He says, uh, of a foreigner, he says, he may exact it again, but that which is thine with thy brother, thine hand shall release. So, that's what the world bankers are doing. The world bankers, they think you're foreigners to God. They think they're servants of God. They feel justified in creating these banking lending systems to give you whatever you want. And, of course, they, they want collateral. You know, and that's, of course, what happened back in 1929. Is you ran out of collateral. So they tighten the money supply and you guys were all you know borrowing money to invest in the stock market to make a fortune off of your neighbors because the stock market just kept going up and up and up and suddenly they couldn't borrow the money and so suddenly it wasn't going to go up because nobody was going to borrow money to buy more of the stocks and so therefore the price of the stocks plummeted back down to where it was closer to the reality and then because it got the momentum of the plummet, it just kept plummeting down even farther. And the whole money system was collapsing and you ran into a depression. And then so then comes along 1933 and they added more collateral to, you know, the, the base. Now we have a new collateral. You and your sons and your daughters were going to be collateral. You're going to be a surety for debt. In order to do that, they had to offer you what? Gifts, gratuities, and benefits. And you all signed up for that. That's history. That's done. It's a done deal. And they're bankrupt again. And they can pull the strings out. But the strings aren't even the same strings anymore. You don't have... 
your your legal t- tender is no longer redeemable and lawful money, and you, you fifty years have gone by, and you've you've missed your opportunities, and you're back in the bondage of Babylon. There's no escape without a miracle, but there's a miracle available if you will repent and turn around, start thinking a different way. In verse five, it says, "Only if." Thou carefully hearken unto the voice of thy Lord to observe to do all these commandments which I command thee this day. Only then. Then the Lord thy God blesseth thee. The thing is, is you're a foreigner to God because you're not doing things the way God said to do them. You're not doing them through faith, hope, and charity. You're the prodigal son and went off and now you find yourself totally bankrupt. And and you're eating, you're back in the mire. You know, eating what the pigs eat. You you have to take the benefits of the benefactors who exercise authority or starve. So you have to eat with the pigs. But if you will repent and start going back to your father's house. To what? Claim your inheritance? No. Go back to your father's house with the intent of being a servant in your father's house. I would be better off a servant in my father's house. All you have to do is really turn around and head back. You got to actually start the journey, though, of heading back. I'm not saying get rid of your Social Security payment if you're an old guy. I'm not saying, you know... uh, if you're on food stamps, you can't eat anymore until you get everything straightened out. No, you, I don't want you starving to death. God will judge your sincerity. You can't fake this. But you have to turn around with whatever you have and start contributing, sacrificing something of what you have to strengthen somebody else. Now, you can just do this on your own, Sure. But that's not the kingdom of God. That's just doing it on your own. You should do it in a network of people who start to learn so you can teach them. So that you can be more efficient. I mean, that's why uh, Abraham did it. That's why Moses did it. How did all those guys that Abraham, you know, this is overnight Abraham is mustering his 300 soldiers. And yet, thousands came to his aid from all these other places how did they know how did they how why did they come to abraham's aid because he didn't do it with 300 guys or was it i can't even remember now how many guys it was i thought it was around 300 but anyway it's very clear that he had allies that came and helped him and he let them take a spoil but he wouldn't take a spoil but then he had melchizedek come and bring him wine and bread Because he had been tithing to Melchizedek, the righteous king of peace, all this time. But anyway, this is, God's not going to hear your voice until you turn around and start heading back to the ways of the Father. How fast you go, how, how diligent you go, that's between you and God. But that's the direction you have to go. You have to gather together for the purposes of being servants, not only of your congregation, but to others round about you. Not only to people that are in the network, as if somehow because they're in the network that makes them saints. It doesn't. 
but to even strangers in your midst. And and those of you who follow, you know, we, we took care of a local individual who came home from the hospital and was dying. And, and when, even though he wasn't a member of the congregation, he actually has been a great contributor to what we do. Spiritually, he's been a contributor. Physically, he's been a contributor. And so we helped him and we helped his family. And yesterday, my wife was even helping his family continue even though he's passed away. And we do that because that's essential that that's running out to meet our Father, to be a servant to our Father by serving others. That will do more to free you from the system than anything I can tell you. Because that will bring, the Lord will hear your voice if you start making such commitments of personal sacrifice. Because it will draw you near the Lord. And He will hear you. And you will begin to hear Him more. And you need to act upon what He's telling you. Don't argue. Act upon it. But thou shalt open thy hand wide unto Him. And thou shalt surely lend Him sufficient for His needs. And that which He wanteth. Now, we can go over those individual words. But this is... This is what it's telling you. But it says, Beware that there be not a thought in thy wicked heart, saying, The seventh year, the year of release, is at hand, and thine eye be evil against thy poor brother, and thou givest him not, and try unto the Lord against thee, and it be a sin unto thee. So, you know, there's basically there isn't any fakiness. You have to really be gathering together, and I can tell you, your ministers will not always make the wisest decision uh, if you give them your tithe or you know your portion, and hoping. And we have articles up on tithe, so you can start to understand what that is. But you need to release control of a thing. Not so that you will get credit for it. So you give it to a minister and he goes out and gives it. Now they don't know whether you were the big donator or somebody else was the big donator. They just know this minister took funds that he was freely given and he came and helped you. So he doesn't even get the credit except as minister. But it isn't his money he's giving or his aid that he's giving. It's what others gave him. You see, if you only give to people, you buy their appreciation. But if you give to another minister and nobody knows who gave to what, they don't, they can't, you, you don't, you don't get put up on a pedestal. They may care about you more because you're in that congregation, they may not, but it removes, because this is, this is very important. How many times, you know, like the story I told of the, the grandfather and the sparrow thing. Now that son was already feeling bad about what he did. You could see that. It was a well done little video. He was already feeling bad about what he did. But when he read that by his father of the story about himself, and you'll just have to go back and I'm going to tell you again, it touched his heart. It made a change. It turned him around. That's what you need. You need to do that where you give where you're not going to get anything directly back. 
from that individual you gave to. Because you gave through a minister. And when you cast your bread upon the waters, that's then your minister takes what you gave and he gives it a long ways away. He gives it far away. And so you don't you just have a hope that it will come back to you. And in the in the quantum of God's spiritual realms, it does. Same as that girl without legs became a gymnastic star. I mean she's she she does uh she doesn't just teach gymnastics now. She's on the stage. Uh talented individual. And she became that star without legs. And she was somehow mysteriously connected to her own sister, who she never even knew existed. Drawn to her in the quantum, in the spiritual realms. Those of you who, who don't even think, that there's probably not many of you on this broadcast who think there is no heaven and hell. <laughs> there is. It's not probably what you think, but it is. And they're real realms. And they exist. And you're either being drawn towards one or drawn towards the other in this life. So that in the next life, you will be pulled into one or the other. And what draws you near the realm of righteousness is seeking righteousness in all that you do. And coveting your neighbor's goods is not righteous. But sacrifice draws you near the righteous. And awakens and opens the door of righteousness, which is Christ in you. So this is why you gather together. And this is the only way out of the system is to become the system of Christ because they will cast you out. Israel was cast out of Egypt. It wasn't called out of Egypt. It was cast out of Egypt. The Levites were called out of the Walden camp. The apostles were called out. But the people were cast out when they received the baptism of Jesus Christ, but receiving the baptism of Jesus Christ is not the same as receiving the baptism of Constantine. Constantine said, Everybody in Milan, get baptized. He didn't say repent and get baptized. They just got baptized, which is why they they ended up electing the whole city, elected one bishop. Totally outside the pattern. And where did they find the bishop? They found him in a brothel. He was a former employee of the, the imperial government. And they made him a bishop. And the first thing he wanted to do is persecute anybody who was not following what he thought Christianity was. Because he wasn't a Christian. He didn't even know what it was. He had to take time off to go and study it. But his heart had not changed. So his studying it came up with a Christianity that would exercise authority one over the other. Persecute those who did not see Christianity as he saw it. And a new baptism was created. And people, you know, hundreds of years ago rebelled against that baptismal church and said, we don't want to have anything. We're, we're going to be Protestants. 
And they had a good cause, too. Because, I mean, it was full of corruption at that time. And was born out of corruption, which was Constantine. But have they conformed to Christ? Protesting the evil is not enough. And you can tell if you've conformed to Christ if you're seeking a daily ministration to the needy of your society through faith, hope, and charity and the perfect law of liberty, through a voluntary network of congregations served by titular leaders who lead in charity, not in force, not in rules, not in regulations. You can't regulate them either. It's a it's a union of love and it, it draws you closer to the kingdom of God where this spiritual connection can be made across thousands of miles. Well, you will just know, I want to learn this. I want to do that. People don't know what to do with their lives. They haven't been born yet. They live, they eat, they react, they act in the physical environment, but they are not born to a spiritual realm that will show them what to do with their life in this physical realm. I don't need to control them. We you know, like I'm sure a lot of people think we're a cult. We don't have people imprisoned in a room or in a building or dependent upon us. You know, where they're not supposed to... Contact. We tell everybody, keep going to the same church you're going to if that's what God wants you to do. I can't tell you to leave that church. I can tell you this, that if you do... You really begin to believe Christ and speak according to Christ when He didn't want you in that church anymore, they will kick you out if you don't know to leave. But it's up to you. This is your journey towards salvation. But what draws you down the path of Christ is sacrifice. Because that's what Christ came to teach us to do. So yes, you sacrifice for your your daughters and your sons, and for your wife and for your husband. But the kingdom of God, back to that first statement, they they were the firstborn of a nation. The firstborn of your household is the high priest of your household. That's within the family. They're going to be the ones who receive the greatest inheritance because they're going to be the most responsible for taking care of the father and the mother so that their own days will be long upon the land so that their children, seeing them do this, will take care of them. This is what the commandment is all about because... This, but that's within the family. Okay, how do we do this within the the nation? We have to take care of one another there too, and we need priests there too. Who is the firstborn to be the priest in the nation? It was the Levites. It was the apostles. And the uh, diaconuses of the congregation of the people, who chose the most charitable, the most giving, the most industrious, the most motivated amongst them to be their minister. And this became, by default, part of their justice system. They worked out their problems with their their 
10 elders in their congregation, plus their minister, that's 11, plus the overseer, that's 12, and that formed their jury. And when they had uh, two people from two different congregations, they picked six from one group and six from the other. And Vordire, and they decide fact and law because they chose to go to that court. And when that, that case was over and arbitrated, then that court was dissolved until they needed to form a new one. But the, they formed those courts of the kingdom from people who live by charity and exercise authority. Now, the next questions, we're not going to be able to get to answer all of that. It talks where the, the administrator and Levi uh, both paid positions of the Israelite organization. That, that Absolutely not. They're not paid positions uh, at all. They can eat of the offering, yes. But they're, they're not on salary from the people. They're not dependent upon their congregation for their payment. And this is one of the great confusions. The Levites had lands of their own. They had property of their own. They were not dependent upon their the elders' generosity. If they did, they would soon be corrupted by the rich in their congregations. That, and we have a very distorted view of that. Wanted to know what's, what scriptures show that ten elders chose administer to represent them. And they're using the word administer. I always use the word minister. A servant, not an administer, a minister. Not to serve them, but to serve the, with the offerings they have given them. They're supposed to be serving one another. They're supposed to be loving one another. That minister only serves in the capacity of handling that which you gave up. Your free will offering, your burnt offering. And that burnt offering was mostly to be distributed out even, probably most of it would go outside the congregation. Although there were probably, because the tithing wasn't, you know, like just 10%. I mean, obviously, if there were needs within your congregation, you tried to resolve those needs. But on a regular basis, most of that had to go outside your congregation. And you're not just supposed to take, you know, the money out to the church front door and lay it out on the streets and say, anybody need anything, just come and take it. That's like, uh, you know, throwing blood at a, a patient. Oh, you need blood? Here's a bunch of blood and just throw it on them. It needs to get into the circulatory system of a body of people. And that body, only corporate body of ancient Israel was the Levites. And the only corporate body of Christ was the church. And the Levites were the church in the wilderness and the apostles and the ministers that they laid hands on was the church that was to handle their offering. Now, we'll have to make a clearer picture of this in the next broadcast and we will address these other questions then. Until then, may peace be upon your house and may God be with you. God bless.
You have been listening to The Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. For more information on the educational ministry provided by His Holy Church and Brother Gregory, including services, counseling, lectures, books, and other audio materials, please write to His Church at Summer Lake, Box 10, Summer Lake, Oregon, 97640. You can also find us on the web at www.hisholychurch.net.